Our Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, verses 14 through 17. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste, and I will make justice the line, and righteousness the plumb line, and hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and waters will overwhelm the shelter. The word of the Lord. Friends, our psalm for the day is Psalm 118. We will read responsibly by whole verse. <coughs> Give thanks unto the Lord, for he is gracious. His mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now confess that his mercy endures forever. I called upon the Lord in trouble, and the Lord heard me and set me free. The Lord takes my side with those who help me. Therefore shall I look in triumph upon my enemies. It is better to trust in the Lord, put any confidence in princes. They hem me in on every side. Indeed, they hem me in on every side, but in the name of the Lord will I cut them off. I was thrust aside so that I almost fell, but the Lord was my help. The voice of joy and deliverance is in the dwellings of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord brings mighty things to pass. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord brings mighty things to pass. I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of the Lord. Open unto me the gates of righteousness, that I may go into them and give thanks unto the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter into I will thank you, for you have heard me and have become my salvation. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day. Help me now, O Lord. O Lord, send us now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord who has shown us light. Blind the sacrifice, bind the sacrifice with cords, even to the horns of the altar. You are God, and I will thank you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. 
Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is gracious. His mercy endures forever. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our New Testament reading today is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel lesson for this morning is from John chapter 10 beginning with verse 7. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? Church, this is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and they know me, just as the Father knows me, and I am the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. For there is one flock and one shepherd, for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I take it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This is the charge that I have received from my Father. 
This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. We are continuing in a series of sermons in 1 Peter. If you brought a Bible, open it to 1 Peter chapter 2, the beginning, beginning of the chapter. If you didn't bring a Bible and you would like to follow along, there are blue Bibles on that little low wooden table in the back. Please feel free to grab one and follow along. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of those blue Bibles is your gift from us. Thank you very much for being here. So, so far in in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter is telling his Christian brothers and sisters living in exile in the midst of a, a secular society, he's telling them what their identity is. And he's telling them kind of what their lives are supposed to look like. And so far, he has called them to a worshiping life. He has called them to a holy life. So he's called them to a worshiping life because he's reminding them of all that God has already done for them. Nothing that they did, just things that God has done for them. So he's calling them to that worshiping life. But he's also calling them to a holy life. He's calling them to pursue the path of Christ. And here in this, in this passage today, in verses 1 through 10, what he's doing is he's calling them to a unified life. He's calling them to a unified life as part of God's church and on mission in God's creation for his kingdom. Let me pray as we open God's word. God, we ask that the hearing of your word and the preaching of your word would not just be something that we can give mental assent to. We pray that it would change our lives. We pray that it would change our lives and, that it, would, and that it would in turn change the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So at the beginning of chapter 2, it starts out with the word, so. In some translations, it's the word, therefore. It's the same thing. And here's something about the Bible I like to mention every once in a while. Um, when the Bible was written, it didn't have chapters and verses. Those, are, th- those came much later. Chapters didn't start showing up until about 400 years after they were written. Verses didn't show up until the 1500s. So these were meant to be read as one thing all at once, which is why it's a little strange that we're starting at the beginning of a new chapter with the word therefore, or the word so. As the old saying goes, any time in the Bible that you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? And it's always pointing back. It's always saying, it's, it's like if someone was talking and they gave you a list of facts and a list of opinions and then to summarize said, therefore, in light of everything that I just said, here's what comes next. And so he says, therefore, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So therefore, why? Like what's he just, what's he just got done saying? Well, in the previous verses, Peter had been reminding these elect exiles, these Christians living as strangers and aliens in a secular land, he's been reminding them of a few things. One, you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ, and your life is not your own, therefore. It's exactly what Jesus was saying in the gospel. And that's the worshiping life that Peter calls us into. The second thing he's been reminding them of is that God made you holy and that God calls you to pursue holiness. So that's the holy life that he's reminding us of. But then he also said, he reached back into Isaiah 40, and he reminded these people that human beings are incredibly fragile and that human life is very fleeting. He quoted the passage where he said that, that um, 
that all flesh is like grass, like the flower of the field, that it, it flowers one day and then it withers and dies. So he's reminding them that human life is very fleeting, but then he says God is forever, and his kingdom is forever, and the new life that he has raised you into is forever. That's, that's the, the, the stuff that he's looking at when he says therefore or so. In light of all that, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. If you think about those words, what, what do they have in common other than the fact that they're all bad? Like what it, what's the commonality there? They're all things that are done in relationship to one another. They're all things that are done between people, things that are done in community. Human beings, Peter's saying, human beings are weak and frail. And, and God says, I've brought you together. So it makes sense bringing together these human beings who are weak and frail and life is fleeting. It would make sense that he's saying, stop doing things that will hurt one another. It's just that simple. And he doesn't need to tell us to stop murdering or stop stealing from one another. Those things are obvious. What he's getting at are the more subtle things. He wants to get at the stuff that really nice, put-together church folk can do after the service with a big smile on their face. Malice. Wishing bad things for someone and maybe even kind of working behind the scenes to make those things happen. Deceit. Lying. Intentionally withholding truth. Hypocrisy. This is a big one in churches all churches, trying to look like one thing while really being another. Envy. Why don't I have what they have? I deserve to have what they have. I don't like them now, and I'm going to find a way to get what they have. And slander. Slander, the cousin of gossip, which is one of the things that the New Testament warns against more than almost anything else. Slander is telling lies about someone. It's, it's taking their name in vain. Not as bad as taking the name of the Lord in vain, but as image bearers of God, we should be careful with one another's reputations. And I mean, making up things that someone else has done is, each one of us does enough dumb stuff on our own. We don't need to be making up lies about stuff that the other people have done. And so Peter is saying, you all are together, and you are redeemed, and you are also frail, and human life is fleeting. So you need to remove the stuff that can get in the way of the unity that I am calling you to with one another. And Peter starts building out this metaphor that is just beautiful, and it speaks about who Jesus is, and it speaks about who we are as a result. And, and I think it does a better job than almost anything else in the Bible. Peter is saying, yes, you are, you are weak, you are grass, but you are also stones. Why are you stones? Because you have been reborn. You have been refashioned. You were grass of the field yesterday. You know, here today, gone tomorrow, fleeting. But now you're, you're different. Now you've been made into something else. Now you're new. And you're stones. And you're not just any stones. Because before you were dead grass. But now Peter here is saying you are living stones. And he's quick to point out that all of this hinges on Jesus. And then to illustrate further this point, this metaphor that he's going to start spinning out, Peter reaches back into the Old Testament and he grabs three different passages. Isaiah 28, 
Psalm 118 and Isaiah 8. Isaiah 28, we just heard it read. It says, look, I have laid a stone in Zion. That's Jerusalem. A tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and the one who believes in it will be unshakable. And I will make justice the measuring line. And I will make righteousness the mason's level. So he's kind of like setting the dimensions of this thing. And he's saying, here's how we're going to measure this stone. It's going to be measured with justice and it's going to be measured with righteousness. Those two words, anytime you hear them together, especially in the Old Testament, justice and righteousness. It's mishpat and zedekah. Those things always are describing the qualities of God. It's God's righteousness. It's God's justice. And God has done this. He says in Zion, in Jerusalem, He has laid this precious cornerstone. In Psalm 118, it says, I thank you that you have answered me and that you have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Peter again emphasizing, this is the Lord's doing. This is nothing that we came up with ourselves. These are the actions of a just and a righteous but also a gracious and merciful God. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Then in Isaiah 8, it says, For this is what the Lord said to me with great power, to keep me from going the way of these people. He's talking about the Assyrian Empire, this giant empire to the north of Israel that was about to, that was about to consume the northern kingdom of Israel. So, in essence, once again, the prophet Isaiah is talking to a group of people who are about to be elect exiles. They were about to be strangers and foreigners in a land not, un, not their own, like the Christians of Peter's day and, and like you and me. It says, Isaiah 8 says, For this is what the Lord said to me with great power, to keep me from going the way of these people. He said, Do not call everything a conspiracy that these people say is a conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be terrified. You are to regard only the Lord of armies as holy. Only he should be feared. Only he should be held in awe. He will be a sanctuary. But for the two houses of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, for the two houses of Israel, he will be a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over and a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over these. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. It's the same thing that they're saying about Jesus. Many are going to stumble over this cornerstone. When Jesus was performing his public ministry, he had a lot of followers, but there were a lot more who either never wanted to hear what he had to say or listened for a while and then turned away from him. They didn't want to hear it. But, but, Peter is saying to these people that he's writing to, but you did want to hear what he had to say. You do want to follow his path. You want to hear the good news of the kingdom of God. You want to hear the good news that the kingdom of God has come to earth. Many will stumble over the gospel of Christ, Peter is saying, but you didn't. And so as a result of that, you have been reborn, made new, turned into these living stones. And so then we have Jesus as the cornerstone, the, the anchor, the most important piece of any building. But then, more stones, living stones. More stones that get layered on top of that cornerstone. If a cornerstone is, is put just 
perfectly at the start of a building, but then if nothing else ever gets added, it, it's just a rock in the ground. It's the gravestone. But when the cornerstone is laid perfectly, other stones then can be added to it to make the structure that you're looking to make. And so a building is created. But those, tone, those stones have to be tightly fitted together. They have, to, they have to square up with one another. They have to be cemented together. And that's why we talk about being in each other's lives. And that's why we talk about forming a tight-knit community together. And the stones that God is building with can't have any sharp parts that stick into another stone. It would throw off the balance of the wall and it would harm the structural integrity of this building that God is building. And so, put away any malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Peter's saying that with Christ as the cornerstone, this building is being built, and that you, you living stones, you are all packed tightly together to create this glorious structure. When you're reborn into the family of Christ, I'm sorry, when you're reborn because of Christ, you are reborn into a new family. And so it's, it's tight relationships. It's shoulder to shoulder with one another. So it makes sense that Peter's exhorting us not to engage in those practices that would cause friction with one another, that would cause the wall to fracture. We're stones together, and we have a job that God has given us to do. The job of each stone in a building is to support the weight of the stones that are above it and to work with the stones next to it to give the wall the shape and the structure that the builder wants. And Peter doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, try not to have malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy. So it's not just like, don't think those thoughts. The word that he's using here is an action verb. It's oftentimes used to like take off old clothes or throw something away. Put it aside. Fling these things away from you because you don't need them. You don't need these old clothes of how you used to be. You're a new creation. We are living stones, but only because Jesus is the cornerstone. We are living stones only because of Jesus. We are this, this little parish right here and, and, and every church around the world comprising God's one true church. We are only a resurrection family because Jesus was the resurrection. And this is more of the, the stumbling block that Peter's talking about. It's more of the, the bizarre and the upside-down nature of the gospel of the kingdom of God. So all of the power, all of the authority, all of the dominion, who has it? Jesus has it. The, that, it's a Sunday school answer. Jesus is the answer to that question. Jesus has it. But where does that power come from? Because the power that Jesus exercises in his creation is not, it's not a trickle-down authority. It's not like power. Power doesn't flow from God to, to the rich and the famous and the powerful and, and the decision makers, and then eventually it kind of trickles on down to us little peons. Because where is Jesus in this protracted stone metaphor? He's the cornerstone. He's at the bottom. He's at the bottom. Jesus is at the bottom. He's the suffering servant. He's the one who left the glories of his heavenly throne room and made himself nothing humbling himself to the point of a servant. He's not 
He's not at the top of this building. That would be a, a keystone. You know, in a, in, in, the way they design a stone arch, there's always one stone right at the top that's not really being supported by anything else, but it gets locked into place, and it's that keystone that actually provides structure for the rest of the arch. But that's not how Jesus is described. He's at the bottom. He's the, he's the base. He's the cornerstone. And so when we follow Christ, when we are looking to be imitators of Christ, we aren't looking to be the, the keystone up at the top. We are looking to imitate Jesus as the servant. And that's the offense of the gospel. It's the reason that people, it, it's, it's the stumbling block of the gospel. That we win by giving ourselves away. That we succeed by putting others first. That we suffer because that's how God is pleased to grow his kingdom. And Peter is saying, and we are unified. Or at least we're supposed to be. That's the goal. That's the hope. Now, does that mean that, that every church is, is unified on, on every little piece of, of doctrine or how a Christian ethic should work itself out in the world? No. I mean, we, that, that's obvious. Even within a church, does it mean that we're supposed to be that we're supposed to be completely monolithic on every single piece of, of doctrine or how the Christian ethic is supposed to work itself out in the world. No. But we do have to agree on essentials if we are going to pursue unity. So there has to be some circle of things in our family on which we must have agreement or the, the unity is lost. Now, if you take two kind of cartoonish examples of, of what a unified church could be or, 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 or how different people interpret that... Um, on the one hand, you have fundamentalist churches, which generally say that, that you have to expand that circle of things that you're going to agree on to encompass everything. And so you don't just have to agree that God created the world. You have to agree on exactly how he created it. You don't have to just agree that God is going, that Jesus is going to come back in his, in, in his flesh and that he's going to make all things new, you have to agree on exactly how and in what order he's going to get that done. And not only that, but you have to agree on skirts versus pants, and you have to agree on beards, and you have to agree on the role of men and women in the church and in the home. And everything is equally important. And everything then becomes definitional to who we are. And so that's on the one extreme. On the other extreme, you've got liberal churches who put everything up for grabs. I mean, there are... Some denominations now that are, that are letting avowed atheists become pastors. And so they, they believe none of what they are preaching or teaching or proclaiming, but being in church makes some people feel nice and the music is pretty, and so what's the harm? But we, we can't do either one of those things. That's neither one of those are the life that Peter is calling us to. Because not only are we stones living side by side, not only are we being used by God to build his church, but, and this is back to, back to our passage here, this is verse 9. This is the other metaphor that he starts playing out. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are a, we are a nation. We are a kingdom of priests. We're a royal priesthood and a chosen people. Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28, which I just read, are, are starting to talk about the ingrafting 
of God's people. I'm sorry, the ingrafting of God's chosen people into Israel. It's starting to give hints of the ingrafting of the Gentiles into who God's chosen people are, being adopted into his family. Why? For what purpose is God doing these things? So we are stones and we are priests. Why? Well, if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you hear these two metaphors being played out, um, a building and priests, it might make you think of something that he's describing, something that he's getting at. It might make you think of the temple. The temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's presence dwelt most thickly and fully on this earth. The place where the, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man came together. The dwelling place of the presence of God. Except that Peter is saying it's not just one building in Jerusalem anymore. That, that was the old covenant plan. That's the old covenant method. But we, we are now under a new covenant. We are under a new covenant that was sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ, shed in our place. And so now, if you combine these things, the idea that we are a, a, a holy, royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, and that we are living stones being built into something, you combine those things, and we all, all of us, we are the temple. We are the place where God's presence is pleased to dwell most fully on this earth. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom of God is here, Jesus said. And it is spreading across the face of the earth. And his kingdom is growing. And so, as stones, we absolutely rejoice when, when more stones are added to this building. And so, as a kingdom of priests, we rejoice when more priests are added to this kingdom. And all of it, all of it is for the exact same purpose as God's original chosen people with their priests and their temple. The original point of the people of Israel was to proclaim the glory of God to the nations around them. It's, it's the call on our lives too. The end of verse 9. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's a church planter that I know. We used to be in a church planting cohort together. And he gave this image. This was years ago. And he gave this image of this is exactly what the church is supposed to be. First Peter chapter 2, the second half of verse 9. That we proclaim the praises of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we take that light and then we go back into the dark places. We go back into the darkness and proclaim that there is a light and a light giver. And we don't have to be afraid of the darkness because we have the light in us. We worship God together. God calls us to this worshiping life. We pursue Christ together. God calls us collectively to a holy life. And we tell the story together. We go back into the darkness taking the light of Christ with us because God calls us to a missional life and we get to do it together. Stones next to stones. Priests shoulder to shoulder with other priests. We are strangers and aliens in whatever place we find ourselves. 
We're strangers and aliens in this city, in this state, in this nation. Because we are part of a holy nation. We are part of a kingdom of priests. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so we don't proclaim, we don't proclaim his praises with aggression. We don't add more stones to this building or, or bring more priests into this kingdom by coercion. We follow the path of Christ. That's, that's literally all the word holiness means. Following the path of Jesus. We follow the path of Christ, the cornerstone, the one at the bottom, the servant, the one who made himself lower than everyone else, who served instead of being served, who poured himself out for people who hated him because he wanted to show them a better way. And so as we're doing it, my encouragement to you is not only that we are bold in telling the story, not only are we bold in going into the dark places and proclaiming his light, but that while we're doing it, because we're doing it together, that we also remember the very first thing that Peter said in this passage. Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And so we get to stand. You all get to stand shoulder to shoulder with your fellow priests. And you get to rest your weight on the stone below you. And we get to do this together. Thanks be to God.